you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing the film festival circuit right now. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, is currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker extraordinaire Rebecca S. Grace to the show to talk about the making and release of her first feature, What Breaks the Ice. Rebecca talks about her road to getting the film made, why she waited for more money before she went into production. And she talks a little bit about her decision to skip uh, some festivals and go straight to distribution. Uh, we are going to get right into the interview, uh, but don't go away afterwards because we have a discussion about distribution. And we're even going to talk about uh, the latest news uh, in specifically the Aussie strike. Um, but first, Auric, how are you? Um, I'm like barely hanging on to life. Uh, my job right now is, uh, is really demanding. I have been staying up till 2am working on this thing. Um, you know, multiple nights, um, in a row. Uh, and it's just, it's really been tough. And I mean, on top of all that, I've got the movie happening. I had a screening in Oakland last week that, um, was a lot of fun, but they, as I thought, they had so many technical difficulties. Um, man, it was crazy. Uh, including like putting up this huge blow up screen outside next to a street light that they couldn't turn off. And so the whole movie was like washed out for like almost the whole time. The, at the very end, it turned off for like the last 10 minutes. So they got to see the finale with, without the, the distraction. But I mean, literally my movie is so dark, like you could barely see anything for like a good amount of the scenes. If it was like you, a night oh scene, it's like you, you just couldn't see. You brought that up weeks ago. I remember you were saying like my con your concern was, will it be dark enough to do an outdoor screening? I remember that because I remember yeah. looking outside my window at 730 being like, oh, it's dark outside. This is going to be fine for Ulrich. And then now the streetlight debacle. Oh, yeah, it was all crazy because I guess they normally do it in the center of this green, this green grass field area. But then it was too windy. So they, could, they had to put it next to a wall and then they just put it too close to one of these lights. They could have slid it over like 10 feet and it would have been better, but, um, but yeah, they didn't. And that was it. And I don't know. I love those guys. I love the film festival. They're, they're really sweet people, but they just, if they don't hire somebody to do the technical stuff, which they don't, unless it's like at a proper theater, um, it's always a disaster. So <laughs> I was telling my friend, like when I'd retire, like I'm just going to donate my time and like become a full-time volunteer for the festival just to do their technical work. Like when I don't have a job to do anymore, I'll be like, okay, look, I'll just do it for you guys free whatever but like i'll just make them all look great and they won't look crappy anymore and filmmakers will be a lot happier but anyway so you. yeah they need you yeah it's, uh, it's it's been a little bit crazy and then also doing distribution meetings which we'll talk about a little bit later um for the movie too so it's just a lot of juggling but anyways how about you what's going on your end it's so funny. I think we're both in like a very stressed out situation right now. Like I was like, oh, you stole my answer. <laughs> Barely hanging on. That's an appropriate evaluation. I, I did want to commiserate in that I had a screening um, at a film festival where I hired a band to play a set, a David Bowie cover band to play a set before the screening. And uh, they left. I don't know what drum. I think it's a snare drum. They left a drum uh, on set, but sorry, on stage, which was really just like right in front of the screen, 
they left it and didn't take it away before the movie. So the entire sound bounced out of the drum throughout the whole movie. You could just like, oh I don't God. even know how to describe it. Like, I don't know physics Ugh. that well, but it, I, I totally understand. It's just like one minor mistake will ruin the experience. Um, I'm, I'm okay. I, um, good. I've, <laughs> I'm, I've overcommitted myself as per usual, and I'm just very stressed out about that. And to pair with that, I started watching Midnight Mass, and I only watched one episode where nothing happened that would be very scary at all. And I still can't sleep at night because I could just think about all the episodes <laughs> that I'm going to see that will be scary. And so I'm just, it's just a lethal combination of spooky season and pre-production for me. But wow. hearing that you're suffering too somehow made me feel better. So thank you for suffering. All right. That's good. At least you're suffering for your craft in a way. Like, you know, you're, you're working on this short film and that's like the blood, sweat and tears that you're, you know, pouring out of you. But uh, yeah, for me, it's like, I'm doing some of that, but it's a lot of this, just this day job stuff, which, you know, like I'm happy to do, like, obviously I love my job, but it's like, you know, it would be more fun if it was my movie. That's <laughs> that a that great was, point. So. Well, actually um, I haven't the, and I, I know we need to move on, but uh, the reason I'm so stressed out is not necessarily the short anymore. I've actually crewed up. We're almost cast up. Like things are falling in line. It's amazing. It's that I don't have time to fix the script and shot list because of all my day job stuff. Mm. So that's what's stressing me out. It's not actually the tasks. It's like, like you, it's like, how do I buy more time? How do I increase the day? Like if I could just like pay $20 and get an extra hour, I'd be pretty happy. Uh, and I think that's maybe also how you're feeling is like trying to stuff too much into one day. Well, you're not sleeping. You just need to shot list. So like when I you can't, can't sleep at night. Well, because Sean's a really light sleeper. Oh, no. So I'm just like lying there, like curled up thinking about uh, Mike Flanagan movies and just like, oh, you know, that's so funny. Um, I can't I can't really do much. Uh, he keeps saying things like, no, 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 do your work. But I know I know I'll keep him up. So whatever. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, well, um, what about happier things? What about Patreon? Let's talk about Patreon. Yeah, so we have a Patreon page. If you didn't know, um, we uh, have a lot of wonderful people who are on there right now, and and basically it's the way the show survives. the The way that like the wheels stay on, especially when Liz and I are overworked and look ridiculous. If you saw the video right now, like my <laughs> hair is all over the place, and I'm wearing the same shirt as I wore yesterday. It's 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 a disaster. Um, but. Uh, Anyways, the Patreon is what makes it possible for the show to keep on going. We have, you know, a, a bunch of editors that we're going to be working with going forward. You know, Liz, you know, will send you wonderful things at certain levels, like a sticker, potentially. Um, yeah. And then at $9, a pin. So, yeah, check it out and see what you think. Our love and appreciation, our lifelong devotion to you, if you help us make this show. Because I do think... There's a uh, there's a reason why it's, you know, been going on for six or seven years. And I think there's a lot of love and commitment to what this show is. And we just want to keep going. So thank you in yeah. advance. Absolutely. Uh, raw determination and stubbornness beyond belief that, you know, this will <laughs> show will go on no matter what the hell happens. But uh, with your help, it'll be a little bit easier for us. 
Um, also, you got to make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association or the ISA, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. They will publish your logline to a network of industry professionals. They do consultation, they do contests, they have a top 25 writers list featuring some of the best writers um, in the network. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. And you know you can get the yearly membership for $80, which is normally a hundred bucks by using the promo code MMIH2021, which is valid through November 30th and for new ISA Connect members only, but make, make good use of it. Yeah. And without further gloobity glop, here's our interview with Rebecca S. Grace. Sure. Um, welcome, Rebecca, to the show. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, give us the elevator pitch for What Breaks the Ice. Sure. So What Breaks the Ice is a coming of age drama thriller uh, set in the late 90s. It's a story about two teenage girls from kind of opposite sides of the tracks in a small town who become fast friends and then uh, accidentally commit a murder. (laughs) Um, And then I guess the film concerns itself with whether uh, they'll get away with this secret that they're both holding and also whether uh, it actually was an accident. And as the story unfolds, I think it kind of touches into some more nuanced issues about um, about consent and about um, morality that I I think are particular particularly appropriate to the time period that the film is set, which is exactly the year 1998, which is like kind of the summer after the whole Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky thing was was going on in the world. How many days did you shoot? We shot for 20, 20 well we shot for twenty days. But we were like 21 out of 20 because we got uh, we got rained out and we had to go dark. So uh, but 20 days. And if you can say, what was the rough budget of the film? Uh, We're a modified low budget film. So, um, you know, in that in that budget range and also qualified for the New York State tax credit program. So uh, we, we did. All, all of our film in, in New York, uh, in upstate New York, and we did post-production in New York City. Um, I, I just hate to do this, but can for the people who don't know what that means, can you specify what modified low budget is? Of course. So that means that like our on budget on like our on paper budget was around seven hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars or less. It was not less. Um, <laughs> and then there are certain incentives that. Cert, that SAG allows for for diversity and other aspects that can kind of bump your budget a little higher. Um, and then, like I said, fortunately, we're participating in the tax credit program from New York State. And that doesn't actually play into the actual budgeteer level, but that that's where we were. Yeah, I, I was on a movie where that we were that and then they were, they were like, oh, we can go up to 1.4 million. And I think the movie that we yeah. were on didn't go that high, but it's interesting to hear like how that works and what that means and how you qualify for that, you know? Yeah, I mean, we were, um, we are a, a film that has a lot of, uh, almost all of our department heads are all women, people of, or, and, in a, and additionally people of color. And uh, we're really proud of that. Um, regarding the film. And then um, additionally, 
yeah, like there are just the way that, that you can structure your budget for those kinds of things is, um, it's a little bit of a dance, but I'm, I'm proud of the way that we were able to put that, put that all together. So I'm just, I, I wasn't sure that question was going to go. I thought you were going to be super vague and I was not going to press you because you're one of my favorite people and you get special treatment this whole hour. Uh, but um, anyway, I'm just really excited that you got so specific and I'm segueing that to my next question. How did you come up with the idea for the script? So, yeah, so it's interesting. Kind of, It was sort of an interesting, um, unexpected um full circle for me, which is that I actually started writing the film after seeing Richard Linklater's film Boyhood um, at a special screening at the IFC Center. And I thought it was a, an amazing film, pure outside of the, like just the, the structural way that the film was made. I, I just got me thinking, you know, I was at a place in my life um, and, thinking about what the first film that I would want to make would be. And I thought, well, what would girlhood look like for me if I was going to write such a film? And I started thinking back to my adolescence and um, I spent a lot of my formative years from like around ages nine and until around 15 in sleepaway camp with, you know, in the woods of New Hampshire. And it was a very, look, it wasn't like we were feral beings running around like crazy. I mean, we had camp, we had counselors and adults around, but we spent a lot of time just kind of being teenagers and, and living outside of technology and away from our parents. And I really thought back to a lot of those conversations that I had with my friends about the, the things that we were so curious about uh, as far as what it meant to be an adult. And then the, just the things that we cared about generally. And at the same time, uh, you know, I was really always searching for filmmakers that inspired me. And one of them is the great Andrea Arnold. And I read an interview with her where she talked about her screenwriting process. And she said, you know, I don't always put pressure on myself to think about the, what the story is. Sometimes I just start with characters. And so I started with two characters and conversations that they were having with each other. And then from there built out a story that I wanted to tell, but it really just started with the two main characters of Sammy and Emily. Um, I have to ask like, so how did the murder come into play in this, you know, cause you're <laughs> talking about drawing from your own experiences of girlhood and everything. It's like, yeah, so murder then. Yes. <laughs> Uh, are you asking me if I've killed anybody? I, mean, I don't know if I can really disclose <laughs> yeah. that on this podcast. Yeah, recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, another piece of my, I will be honest, I think there's, a, there's another piece to this, which I don't know if I'm really proud of, because I think the part that I can be proud of is I was a rabid Agatha Christie fanatic as a child. <laughs> I mean, I think I've read every Agatha Christie book out there. Um, love Nancy Drew. I just, I, I was a, like from a very young age, just fascinated with um, murder mystery. Um, and then I read this fascinating story. And again, I, I'm not proud of the fact that this fascinated me. It was a story of these two girls in West Virginia who um, befriended, uh, they, befri they were like, it was basically two girls who then befriended a third girl and girl number one and girl number three decided they just didn't want to be friends with the other one anymore. And so they killed her. And then they 
proceeded for the next six months to participate in like a very in-depth murder investigation in their town until one of them cracked. And I remember watching this story unfold and thinking, how unbelievable that they were able to keep this secret for so long. But also the fact that the two girls who then became the ones that killed the other one, that the the depth of their friendship was so intense that they were willing to like protect each other until literally one of them had a nervous breakdown. And I guess the reason it captivated me from a storytelling perspective is that I really truly believe that at that age in your life, your friendships go deeper than blood in a way that I think as adults, we kind of, our friends are important to us and we value them, but there's something about like when you're a teenager and you like find that best friend, like, you know, nothing, nothing can kind of penetrate that, that friendship. Um, so I have to ask my real question now. So how long did you spend on working? How long did you spend working on the film from, you know, coming up with the idea to it being released now? Uh, I, I came up with the idea seven years ago, but I would say that truly when I think about like writing the screenplay and to now five, five years with some, you know, other stuff happening in between, like real jobs and other stuff, you know, <laughs> life, life. Yeah. Five years compared to all the other projects you've done. How difficult was this one? Uh, I put this up in the top five things <laughs> that are the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, well worth it. Um, but, uh, true to the name of your podcast, making movies is hard. So. Okay. I'm going to attempt to ask a question as per usual, that isn't fully formed and it's, and it's even harder because I know you so well, but I think so Rebecca, by the way, is the inspiration for two characters in two out of three of my future films. (laughs) She's like, she like infiltrates my mind in a very specific way um, because I love her. So Rebecca, you've worked for like big wigs, massive big wigs, and we could get into it. But I, I knowing you, I think that there's been a degree of strategy in your own career um, to why you've done the day jobs that you've had and how that has informed the development of this feature and every other project you're planning to work on. So for those who, um, you know, this, a lot of filmmakers listen to this podcast and a lot of them um, don't work in this industry. And I just wanted to see if you could speak to why you chose the jobs you did and how they've helped you as an artist, if you could speak to such a large question. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think every, I think there's, there are, there's an unlimited ways, an unlimited number of paths that you can choose to, to find your way into directing films. Uh, The path that I chose was really um, after, well, and I should say this, like, you know, Liz and I went to USC film school together and um, while we, and pursued our MFAs, it's where we met and, um, and became friends, obviously, you know, I chose the path of learning the industry and it was, it was a, 
a, it was a choice that I made. And I know that not everybody chooses that path. I went into working as an assistant and I was an assistant for independent film producers, for studio producers, then studio directors. I even briefly worked as an assistant to a major celebrity. Um, and I think that all of those experiences kind of, I would say like, dictated the path that I took as far as I always had the goal in mind that I wanted to be a director and writer, but I really wanted to know how to do it by knowing the inside out so that when I had the opportunity to, you know, fundraise and pitch my project and go out to, to talent that I wasn't, and this is no judgment on people that take different paths because I could also say that my path was I don't know, it, it had its own challenges that I sometimes wonder if I, if I needed to go through all of those channels. But at the same time, I'm a researcher by nature, and I think it really helped me to understand the business so that I knew how to approach it when I was coming at it as the leader of my, of my first feature. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that path is for everyone, but I think what it did help me and what did help inform me most first and foremost was thinking like an entrepreneur. Like if I'm coming at this, not just as an artist and a filmmaker, but like truly like a woman starting her own business, what does it look like to approach the industry as an individual building a team in order to get a film made? Um, going back to the assistant stuff, uh, you know, when I was working, um, coming up, like trying to figure out what to do and like how to get to directing, like, you know, I was PAing, I was doing all these things and I asked somebody like, okay, well maybe I should be a director's assistant. Like that'll be the best thing. Cause then I could be like right close with the director. And then they're like, no, you're just going to be getting laundry the whole time. You're never going to get any, you know, whatever experience or knowledge from that, but you did it. So is that true? Like, do you just end up doing all these stupid tasks or did you actually get to spend time with them on set and learning while they're doing their process? I had a very, as a director's assistant specifically, I had a very positive experience. I, I worked for the late Jonathan Demi, who's like one of the greatest directors to have ever lived. And he was a very generous human being. And so I was fortunate that he did let me learn from him. I'm not saying that was an easy job, you know, but it, it allowed me the opportunity to see what his job looked like. And who knows if, who, who knows if I'll ever get to, I mean, I don't even compare myself to getting to that level of, of, of success. What I was going to say is even just being somebody that a studio ever wants to work with. I don't know if that will ever happen. Who knows? We never know where our lives will take us. But what I did learn from him was how to be a professional director. And it even helped me with my own film where how to navigate working with producers and working with talent and working with a crew where I saw someone do it at the absolute highest level. Now that's not to say that that assistant job, you know, can't end up that way. In fact, I've often spoken with a lot of people coming up in, in the industry and, and told them to be really careful about who they choose to work for because there are a lot of people out there who will say that they're going to give you that kind of opportunity. And then you do find yourself doing a lot of mindless tasks that aren't really 
giving you the experience that you want. And those jobs can be very time consuming at the expense of you really investing in yourself as an artist. So I think there's, there has to be some kind of a, a balance, but at the same time, like I, you know, when, I, when you asked me when I started writing this film, I said it was in 2014, but I actually took almost two years off from doing a lot of creative things because I wanted to work for Jonathan. And I thought that it would be an incredible opportunity. So I think just being really careful about who you say yes to, because your time is valuable as well. I like that you said you have a researcher's mind and thinking about the way you teamed up to make this film. I mean, just like the pedigree of the people involved, the funders involved, you know, you, you utilizing tax credits. Like I think a lot of first time filmmakers, again, they're just going to, and, and I've I've done this myself, um, just kind of scramble together, whatever they can, just to get it in the can, uh, in terms of, Casting, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think that's going to be pivotal for you and maybe has already proven to be pivotal for you. Did you always think you were going to, was there any, any moment where you were going to, you were just going to make this film come hell or high water, even without the pedigree that you earned now? Uh, and what convinced you not to do that? It's a great question because I did. And in fact, um, probably around the time when we saw each other in Austin, uh, South by probably, uh, four years ago, you know, I had been living in Austin for two years and I, I did have a moment. I actually rewrote the entire script to be set in, in like the lake, you know, the hill country uh, of Texas, and we did talk about doing a version of the film where it was just whatever we could get together, um, we were going to make it. And I think what changed, honestly, and I, and I, you know, I, if I'm going to be totally honest, if I'm going to take off my, my businesswoman hat and put on my artist hat, it was a strange time because I really wanted to make the film so much. And then I had this really great opportunity that came to me through the Austin Film Society. And that's when we started to pivot with the, you know, the core team that was involved already, where we said, maybe we should be looking to do this differently. Maybe we can leverage this into more money, into different, approaching different type of talent than we had, we had been thinking about. And that's not to say that you shouldn't go out and make your film. And I think that <laughs> we've endured a lot of headaches because we had a bigger budget than we were planning on. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, in the, at the end of the day, whereas, you know, I think every script, like a script becomes, a script has its own personality once you write it. And then the movie dictates what it needs to be. It takes on a life of its own. And I think that, with this particular film, it actually might've been dangerous to try to do it for less money than we did. Um, given the, like the fact that there's so many exteriors and there's some stunts and there's just a lot of stuff that goes on in, in the script that even if we thought that we could do it for less, I actually don't know if it would have been safe to do it for less. So I think it kind of all came together in the right way. 
like this is something that I think about a lot as a filmmaker. Like I just made my first feature and I didn't wait for more money. I just got what I could and I made it, you know, and I kind of feel like in a lot of ways, like for years I was waiting for more money or trying to find more money and it didn't work out. And, you know, wondered like, oh man, if I just like had tried to do it earlier it would have been better. But honestly, I, I it took me that long just to raise what I got. <laughs> So I guess the question I'm trying to get to is like, do you feel like despite mm -hmm. the dangerous aspects, let's, let's say you were able to, to shoot it and pull it off. Like, what do you think the difference in where you're at now would be like, ver like, would it be like a different distributor? Do you feel like the movie wouldn't even be done yet? Like, like what would the world look like if you had made it for like a, a much lower budget? Also a great question. Um, I think that, and I, and I totally support that. You know, I think that, um, like I said, I think every movie kind of dictates where it tells you where it wants to go. We found ourselves in a situation where we got a sales agent early on because of the post-production deal that we negotiated with a post house in New York, Goldcrest films that takes on independent films and documentaries and then has like a vertically integrated structure where they do some in-kind investment. And then they also do, you do all your posts there and then they're your sales agent. And so I think that, look, that if I'm going to be honest, yeah, it costs more money to, to do it that way. But at the same time, we were set up where the film was being pitched to distributors even before it was finished. At the same time, I think when you make a film for less money, you, you stand to quickly recoup more money. So, you know, ah, we, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's my fantasy. My fantasy is that, uh, you know, if we made this movie for less money, that uh, we'd make more money back faster, but I'm sure that's not always true as I'm, the experts are telling me here we all have our fantasies about how things look different on the on different sides but um yeah I mean I don't know it's a it's a hard question I also think that COVID affected a lot of this you know the whole distribution model really got upended uh, a lot of we we were talking to a lot of distributors that just completely stopped buying movies for a whole year there was just nothing that was happening and I think for a lot of people out there like you are wondering why all of a sudden all these Vince Vaughn movies that you forgot about from 2010 were suddenly on Netflix and it was because people weren't buying content and that's even for the smaller the smaller places so I think it's hard to say how it would have been different uh, but I do think that I think we made the right choice for the movie, but I also, I also don't think that it's, uh, I don't think you need to do things the way that we did to have a successful film. Um, for what it's worth, I, I hundred percent believe you did the right thing. And I remember being in a women in film mentorship meeting, where it's the only, <laughs> it's the only meeting we had. And I said something about, um, how I didn't want to do bigger budget projects. And they were like, you're afraid. And I'm like, no, I'm not afraid. And then I was like, why am I getting so defensive about, about this? Why am I getting so angry? And then I was like, oh, I'm afraid. And I think there's a lot of one aspect of what you're talking about, I think is 
there's a lack of confidence from emerging filmmakers who just want to prove themselves and get something in the can and then move on to the next project. But it seems as if you've invested so much time and energy in what you thought was a really meaningful idea that had a lot of substance to it. And you and this is not a question I'm realizing, but you and you decided to back it and to put everything behind it. So if there was any question, I, I don't think what you did. I think what you did was the right decision. And I think an alternative maybe doing going to production too soon just to get it over with, so to speak. And I don't think that's what Ulrich did either. Ulrich, I'm not, no, no I realize I'm in between two strategies. <laughs> well, um, I, it's but, funny. Cause like, you know, when I was going into production, I was like, am I doing my movie a disservice? Like, should I have waited? Should I have raised more money? And, and then the answer I just came back to my, for myself is like, no, like this is the movie that had to be made now to get out of my system and move on to whatever the next project is, you know, and, and like having talked to like, you know, hundreds of other filmmakers and like hearing stories of people who start with like the $20,000, $30,000 feature, then work their way up to like the, you know, a hundred thousand, then 200,000 and then X and X. I feel like by doing what you did, it's like you skipped a bunch of those steps. Like now that you're at like this, whatever you are, whatever the budget is, but this, you know, over 500, over half a million zone, it like puts you in another stratosphere for your next project. You know, so I think like, is also not a question, but I think it's more like, yeah, like that's the benefit you get from being able to pull that off. And, and it also should be said that it's really hard to do what you did. And it's not like something that anyone can do, you know, or we all would have done it. Right. And so I think like the question that I am going to ask you is like, what <laughs> did you do to get yourself in the position where you could make your movie for that kind of budget? Sure. So, and first of all, congratulations, Ulrich, on, on your film and really exciting. And I can't wait to see it. Truly very exciting. Um, Yeah. So I think that, like I said, going back to, you know, Liz's question and, you know, our conversation about my career trajectory, um, I'd worked on so many different sized films, um, as an employee of others, but very close to the people that were making decisions about them. That, and I think in LA, especially, I know you guys are in LA. I have not Ulrich. Oh, Ulrich, where are you? I'm in the, the East Bay, Northern California. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. Outside the that. system, I you were baby. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I mean, I'm, I'm here in New York, but you know, I lived in LA a long, long, a long yeah. time. So I think what's been interesting was when I got away from, and not in a, because I had some good, ex, I had great experiences, some not so great experiences, but I saw how movies were made on all different scope and scale. And so um, it was funny to me, look, the amount of money that it costs to make this film still seems like a ridiculous amount of money to me. It's not like I'm walking around being like, oh, that was nothing, you know, whatever. I see six figures all the time, you know. Um, it was, it felt like a lot of money to me and it, and it is a lot of money. Um, but what was funny to me at the same time was talking to folks I had worked with uh, both in LA and New York, but like on different budget tiers where they'd be like, how do you make a movie for that amount of money? And I'm like, uh, you can do it. I promise. 
And we, you know, we were, we had, look, of course we had an incredibly passionate crew. We had people that really were committed to the project. Um, We, you know, we paid people, but I would say, you know, what, what prepared me to do that? I I don't know. Sometimes I think it was a little bit of an out of body experience, but it was also like, it was the culmination of a lot of other jobs that I had done where I saw enormous movie sets like we're talking on the level of a hundred million dollars and I had also been on you know in addition to like doing student films and very low budget uh short films where I and documentaries where there's five people in the crew and so you kind of just find your um your compass of what feels right and yeah I'm not gonna you know there were some days and I can think of two or three in particular where I looked around and I was like, how are there this many people here? This is crazy. Um, and, but, but also recognized that, you know, everybody was there. Everyone there was needed to make sure that the film was made properly and safely. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I just kind of, I think with a lot of things, like you were saying earlier, Ulrich, about just deciding the movie had to come out of you and happen now, and that was the time to do it. Um, I was there and, you know, directing a movie is, it's like, uh, or, you know, you, it's like throwing a party and you show up, everything's already been planned. You just try your best to, to execute it. To enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Try that too. Um, I want to go back to casting because I, I have yeah. a theory uh, that the two leads you cast, I, I use the word pivotal. I'm going to say it again, are, will be pivotal for the release of this film and the marketing of this film. And um, I'm a massive proponent for the importance of, of casting in indie mm-hmm. film. Um, you know, I assume that you worked with the casting director to, to, um, to get to work with these two amazing actresses, but can you talk a little bit about their role in how you're putting the film out into the world? Definitely. And I, and I know for sure, you know, having seen, obviously talked to you so much about your films, Liz, and the incredible cast that you've had, um, absolutely know that casting is really important. We did work with a casting director, uh, Bess Pfeiffer, who's amazing. Um, They've been great uh, as far as supporting the film. Oh, name check. It's Sophia and name check him. Sorry. Yeah. So the the two leads of the film have been really uh, very supportive of, you know, not only the process of the film, but putting it out in the world. Sophia Hublitz and Madeline Klein. Um. Yeah, I mean, you need your cast to to support and be excited about what you've made. And I think one of the challenges that I would actually be pretty honest about talking about is, and I think both of you can relate to this, you, you care more about your movie than anybody else will, right? So I directed this movie. It's going to be, we, we actually started production a couple of days ago. It'll be three years ago. You know, to me this movie is still like one of the most important things in my life. And I'm not going to say that it isn't for the cast because they are, they're so supportive. They're wonderful. I really say this, honestly, there's not a weak link in the cast or crew of this film, but yeah, I, I also respect that like people's lives move on and then having to reflect back on something that, you know, 
was three years ago for them. So I'm, I'm really in their young lives. It's like in their young, I mean, they're young people, (laughs) but when you're, when you're 37, like what's three years, you're like, I sneezed (laughs) and three years went by, you know, (laughs) today's my brother's 35th birthday. And I was like, Oh, so like, basically we're now the same age. I don't, I don't, you know, like, whereas he was always like my little brother. And now I feel like we're just going to be the same age forever. Um, you know, for them, you know, they're in their early twenties. They did a kick-ass awesome job and they've continued to go on and do incredible things. And so, you know, I think, uh, in, in, in the casting process, we actually talked about this yesterday. We did a screening with the SAG foundation and they, we were talking about the importance in casting of like, not just having talented people, but being lucky enough to cast good people that want to stay invested long after the actual process that they're involved with ends until the movie comes out. Um, to that point, like, what was your experience with your cast in the rehearsal process? Like, did you have a lot of rehearsal time or any rehearsal time? Or was it more like, you know, you sign them on, they come the day before, and then you're off shooting the movie? I'd say it was more like the latter. Um, We did not have a lot of prep time, which I think a lot of independent films don't. You know, you're like, great, that last piece of money came in, let's go. And, uh, you know, we, and, and just as a sidebar on that, you know, we continued fundraising through production and post. Uh, we, we didn't have our whole budget when we shot the movie. But uh, as far as rehearsal, uh, yeah, Sophia and Maddie, uh, Sophia was in New York. She wasn't shooting Ozark at the time. Um, and Maddie came out from LA and we went out to dinner and then we did it, the three of us did a table read, you know, in Brooklyn at, you know, an old, playhouse that one of our producers Michael had access to and um, Megan who's the production designer and also my business partner like brought everybody donuts and then the next day we like left to go upstate and we didn't even have a lot of our locations locked you know it was a it was a little bit of a, a scramble but they were very invested in the roles and had done a lot of their own research and had asked me a lot of questions in advance. And I think what I also got very lucky with is, you know, we didn't do any chemistry reads or anything like that. I mean, they were cast individually and I just prayed on my instincts that they were going to get along and be able to execute the friendship that is so pivotal to the film. And, and they did, and they actually became really, really good friends and, you know, you know, shared a suite in a hotel together for most of shooting and, and are still and are still great friends. So uh, we got very lucky in that in that respect. I was talking to Tiffany. Do you remember Tiffany Gray? I was talking to her of the other course. day, and she was like, "Remember yeah. chemistry reads? Do you remember when they used to do that?" And I was like, "Oh my God, you're right. We don't do that anymore." And we just and that's why the romantic comedy just went downhill. Is my massive theory is like because they didn't do those chemistry reads, which are vital to the rom com. Uh, but I digress. Um, I think that there's a pocket of genre films that do well commercially, but it's uh, never a guarantee that they're embraced um, by festivals or best embraced by, um, you know, like elitist 
pompous, pretentious critics or whatever it is, because it's genre and it's not elevated horror and it's not uh, action. It's this whole other think piece onto itself and whatever. That's another show. I just wanted to see, you know, I know you played Woodstock, but I, I know you played a but in this film. I really do feel like it's going to be a commercial hit. How did festivals play into that for you? Um, I think that, I mean, really, I didn't even realize it until just now that I am drinking out of my Woodstock Film Festival <laughs> mug, actually. So here you go for the Yay. YouTube viewers. It's my favorite mug because it's so large and it allows so much coffee. Um, you know, we didn't. And I, it's a, yes, and I agree with you. Uh, the festival circuit conversation is a, is a whole other show into itself. Uh, you know more about that world than I do, having, you know, been at Sundance and all the rest. But, you know, we we kind of we kind of made our peace with the way that that went for us. I think part of that was COVID. Part of that was, if I dare say it in a public forum, I don't think film festivals are what they used to be. You know, I had a conversation earlier with someone who's so wonderful. He's a reporter who's... Um, trying to help us out with um, some press coverage. Uh, and we had a really frank conversation about how what is considered independent cinema isn't independent cinema. Like, I don't really consider, and I feel totally confident going on the record saying this, I don't believe that movies that are coming out of Telluride and out of Toronto, for the most part, are independent films. Now, there are some great independent films. If you're at Toronto and you get to see what's in the Canada um, in some of the Canada selections, I think there's some wonderful independent films that are there, you know, but I think a lot of what the film festival circuit has become is very curated programming that is largely determined by what is lower budget financing, but it's still much bigger budgets than anybody like me could possibly fathom to raise for my first feature without some other kind of profile behind me. And so leaving that piece of it aside, you know, we, I think partially because of the year that we decided to premiere the film, we didn't want to just do a virtual screening. We didn't want to fight for those very limited spots that had already been taken by films that aren't like ours. And, um, and so I was really pleased when it worked out with Woodstock because we got to play an in-person screening and when I, and I joke where we were like, we didn't know if the movie would ever play on a big screen. And then it played on the biggest screen I've ever seen. Like it was literally the biggest drive-in screen, I think in the Northeast. Um, and it was wonderful. And like all of our cast, a lot of, you know, some of our cast and all of our crew could come out and we could all be together, even if we were in our cars wearing, wearing masks, but it was a special way to, see a movie in a year where where on earth would we have been able to do that you know in a different time you know I I think that a lot of filmmakers especially and I'm one of them that when we were in the process of putting the movie together you know you have these dreams of your film playing festivals and going around the world and getting to talk to people in different markets and different cultures about your film we made peace with the fact that this was our movie's journey and and this is and this is where we are. But I think, you know, like I said, I'll leave it there. But I, I do think what we consider the festival circuit and the way that independent films are being distributed and out in the world is really changing. 
I'm just curious, like, you know, just going with a film festival discussion, like in your experience, like, do you think there is value for films to go to festivals if they're playing like not the big majors? Because like, like you said, the majors are all going after these movies that, you know, for us independent filmmakers, like it's kind of an impossible situation for us to have a movie that would play, especially for a first feature at a festival like that. So like going to like the, the middle ground festivals, like, is that a value or do you feel like, you know, might as well just go straight to distribution or straight to sales reps, like right when your film's done and like skip that whole, you know, like expensive process of submitting to like hundreds of festivals. Yeah. Sorry. I was not prepared for that question. Can um, I vamp me... while you think, because I wanted to yes. add something, which I, knowing festival curation and knowing the players that I do, I do think your film was on the, was teetering on the edge of being selected. And I think it's worth it to take that chance. And I want to hear what Rebecca says, but I want to just give a little intel in that you had the access to take that chance to like, you could have played Sundance. I think you could have played Toronto. And well, I would, okay, jumping in here, we had a guest a few weeks ago, Ben Hickernell, who made a film, What We Found. Do you know Ben? Is, he's, mm-hmm. he's part of the cohort, I feel like. And that film had Elizabeth Mitchell. It um, had named cast. It skewed a little genre, but really at its core was a drama. Yet he did speak about the fact that his film was not really being curated or taken seriously. It was thought of as too commercial versus, and I think that that's what I alluded to earlier with that, the uh, gray area of mystery slash suspense thriller in the festival world, not getting the the credence that it deserves those films um did you ever feel like genre was a part of the festival conversation that may have hurt you sure so I think what's interesting with our film in particular is it's been called different things depending on who's interested in it um it's a coming of age I mean coming of age drama thriller like what does that even mean okay like I mean it's a movie that's it that's it's a movie it has good characters and a good story period piece to forget you forgot to add that (laughs) period piece it's like let's just uh let's just hashtag everything that we can um I think that it it can work in lots of different ways I think with particular it was so funny because even early on I was told oh, movies with teenagers make no money because teenagers aren't stars. Then I heard, oh, a teen movie is a slam dunk to sell because teenage girls are the biggest audience out there of uh, consuming entertainment. Then I heard, oh, a thriller is a slam dunk. Then I heard, oh, but if it's like not a straight thriller, people are going to be disappointed. (laughs) Then I heard, oh, a drama. That means people will take it seriously. Then I heard, oh, no one wants dramas anymore. Dramas are boring. So it's like, and then period piece, it was like, oh, if you don't pull it off right, well, no one's going to buy it because it's going to look bad. And by the way, we did pull it off. But my point is that I don't think anybody knows anything. And then in the film festival circuit, especially, look, I think that there have been great strides made in the voices that are being amplified and the types of films that we're seeing I also think that people just like to watch movies that speak to them. And I think for us, 
I kept feeling like I was um, chasing like a moving target of what people wanted my film to be. And we actually had a cool opportunity because of COVID um, to really take a step back and think about like, what is this movie really? You know, when everything quit and film festivals closed down and, you know, we were just on the brink of finishing the film was like, what does this movie really want to be? And we actually did a re-edit and cut out about 12 minutes at the beginning and restructured the first act. And it, I think it made it a better film. And it was because the, the noise went away of everybody telling us what the movie had to be. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure to fit into a narrative of what you think people are looking for. But by the time you are able to achieve that, they're already going to be looking for something else. So it's a fool's errand. And uh, so I, yeah, and I, and I truly believe that, I really believe that nobody knows anything when it comes to what will be successful, what people want to see. You know, programmers are constantly changing their minds about what's relevant to the marketplace. And I think that actually what's even sometimes relevant to programmers isn't relevant to the marketplace. So uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it was my, it that was my experience of navigating that like really strange world of just, at event eventually I just threw my hands up and I said, we're gonna make the movie that we think is the right movie to make. And, and actually having a little bit of silence really helped us find what that was. I think we have one more question, Arik, if you have it ready. As your experience as a filmmaker making your film, and this is your first feature, right? Like going through this journey, you're at the end pretty much, like it's the movie's coming out. Like when you think about what you're gonna do for your next project, do you feel that like you'd want it to be enter into the world in a different way? Or do you feel that the, the going straight to distribution is a totally awesome thing and that like you don't need the whole film festival experience in order to like have a great you know healthy release I'm really sad that I didn't get to do that you know that was something I was really looking forward to as far as you know to your point of the film festival release versus straight to distribution I don't think it's a it's a it's one or the other I don't want to say like oh I would only choose one or I would only choose the other um, but, uh, I think that I was, I had to make peace with the fact that that wasn't happening so that I could embrace the, what the film was, what the film's future was going to be. But yeah, I was extremely disappointed. I mean, it was something I was truly so excited about and, something that, you know, I was very fortunate to experience um, with other films that I had worked on previously as a producer, where I got to go to all these really incredible film festivals and, um, you know, meet incredible filmmakers from around the world. And uh, that was something that I felt was my reward for how hard we had all worked to make this film was I was excited to take team on the road and, and talk about the movie with like really excited, cinematic, enthusiastic audiences. And we didn't get to do that. 
So I, I don't think it's a trade-off. I'm really grateful to have distribution in the, in the way that we do. But yes, there were some dark moments in the last year where I was profoundly depressed that that wasn't something that I got to experience with this movie, given how many years I worked on it and how much time was invested in it and how many things happened in my life in the time of making this film that, you know, you're looking for something to like feel good at the end of a, of a long journey. I think we need to go back in time and bring in and remind ourselves of the early enthusiasm we had for filmmaking. So what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? So the very first film I made um, is a black and white film that I made in 1999. No, sorry, in 2000. And it was a, back when the New York Film Academy was just a summer camp for students who wanted to learn about shooting a 16 millimeter black and white film. And I went to Boston for four weeks and uh, I made a, a, short, a short murder mystery film <laughs> about a woman who goes back to the scene of the crime where her boyfriend was murdered and then she is killed by the guy who killed him. And then he licks the knife at the end. And I was so impressed by the fact that chocolate syrup looks like blood on black and white film. <laughs> um, it was a, uh, it was a fun, it was really fun. My favorite memory about, I mean, this is the thing that like made me like totally hooked on filmmaking. And I, I remember my two favorite things that we, aside from the chocolate syrup on the, on the knife and, uh, was that we uh, we did this really cool shopping cart dolly shot with like this old Aeroflex camera. And it, it was so cool. I was like, this is the coolest thing on earth. I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. What's the best linking advice you've ever received? Honestly, to, to just keep going and to just believe that um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you stick with it, and I know that sounds like a, a very big cliche, but that's the, if I didn't have that advice given to me pretty young, um, I, don't, I don't think I would have ever gotten here because it's, uh, it's a very grueling profession and it, it often feels like it owes you nothing. So if you want to just, you have to just keep going, you know, I, I, and I, I don't like to make this the center of any conversation I have about this film, but I suffered a great tragedy in my life, um, pretty close to the end of post-production on this movie. Um, and that advice never resonated with me more clearly because I felt like I got this far. I have to just keep going. And I think that life is going to get in your way and things are not always going to go the way that you plan on them. And I think you just have to kind of stick with it and, and try to rediscover in a way it's like a relationship as a, with a filmmaker with filmmaking is sort of like a marriage. It's not always going to be great all the time. Right. And you have to try to find ways to dig within yourself and, and rediscover your love for it 
even when things are not going so well and fall in love with the process and fall in love with the craft. And sometimes when I'm really having a hard time, I go back to my favorite films and I rewatch them and I think about why I'm still doing this. Uh, what are your goals as a filmmaker? I would like to continue to tell stories that, um, that mean something to me. And I think my biggest interest as a storyteller is stories that don't have good guys and bad guys. I, I don't think that's real. Um, I, I don't think that anybody, I mean, look, there are terrible people in the world, but I think that as a psychologist once said to me, I think about 97% of people wake up in the morning and think that they're setting out to do the right thing, whether it's for themselves and it's selfishly motivated and they don't realize that it's hurting other people, or maybe they do and they just don't care, but it feels right to them. And one of the things that of all the screenplays that I've written, this obviously being the first one I wrote that was produced as a feature, but I have other things I've been writing and they're all dealing with um, moral ambiguity and how people aren't all good or all bad. And I think that that carries across all different kinds of decisions that we make. And I think if we were able to like be a little bit more open-minded to gray areas, rather than trying to kind of contextualize everything as black and white, uh, we'd all have a little bit of an easier experience as human beings. So that's really my goal ultimately. It's probably why I respond, I think, not to generalize, but a lot of the filmmakers that inspired me pretty early on were um, European filmmakers who I think are a bit more honest about the, the flaws of humanity in some capacities. But I think we're all, I think as Americans, we're getting better at it. I really do. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? What piece of advice would I give myself? It's going to be hard. It's going to be harder than you thought it was going to be. Of course, it's going to be harder than you thought it's going to be. You start out and you're so excited and you love something so much and you want to make your mark on the world. Um, but I would say the advice I would give myself is the, the greatest and most difficult virtue in life is patience. It just is. It's, you, have to, you have to be patient and not just with the process because the process requires incredible patience. But even going back to what I said earlier about how it was only in the, in the ultimate shutdown of COVID where I wasn't where we were just literally, I'm like I said, I'm in New York City, locked in an apartment where I could think about how to make my film better. And it was only with the patience to do that and to sit and have meaningful conversations with people I, I hadn't spoken to in a long time and with my collaborators who also were locked down and to just be patient with that part of the process. The answers, and it was so opposite in many ways of like going back to my earlier years where I was working in development, where everything had to be so fast and it had to be done yesterday. And, you know, I had a very talented boss who unfortunately passed away recently, um, very talented executive and producer, but she, she pushed me a lot and would always be like faster, 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 faster. And so, and I think that, look, she was incredible at her job and that served her, but it didn't serve me. I needed time to think. And so what I, I would encourage my former self to do is to believe that patience and deep thought actually leads somewhere. And it doesn't mean that you're just slowing yourself down. Uh, is making movies hard? 
yeah, of course it is. But it's it's a it's if you if you work with the right people, it's it's the best kind of hard. Sell your wares. Tell us how um, everyone can support you. Absolutely. So um, the film will be available on October first. Uh, it will be um, anywhere you might like to stream movies. So Amazon, Apple, iTunes, Apple TV, Vudu, Google, YouTube, Xbox, Redbox, Digital, Hoopla, which I actually love um, and watch a lot of movies on that platform. And then on demand, if you still have cable, it's on Comcast, Cox, DirecTV, Dish, basically anybody that provides cable to you, it will, it will be streaming on demand. Yay. Yeah. And then also, and then also in theaters, um, if you're in the LA area, we'll be at the Lemley new hall and, uh, waiting to just hear what others, uh, theaters will be in. I, we're doing, I think a five to seven city release. So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. This is so fun. Amazing. Oh my God, Liz, this is like, uh, it's like some weird dream. Like we were like, we met at some like random party like 12 years ago. And I'm like, imagine one day we get to do a podcast. This is so fun. Um, Alric, what do you remember about talking with Rebecca a few days ago? Oh my gosh, Rebecca, what can you say about this person? Like so inspirational, um, so smart and so like, focused and controlled in the way that she approaches her filmmaking. It kind of makes me feel like I'm a blundering maniac uh, when it comes to like the way I put a project together. Cause she just seems like she's so concise and just so, you know, intentional with everything she does, not just with the writing and the, the creative, but like with the way she approaches putting it all together. And I think that that was kind of a huge takeaway for me about like how methodical she was and how, patient she was with her uh film production and then how that led to like you know one hell of a looking movie i mean i don't know if you've seen the trailer but this thing looks incredible and like it's got some really awesome young name not name cast but young cast that have been in lots of things that you have heard of you know and it's really like you know it's kind of like the ideal first feature for any filmmaker really mm -hmm. in a lot of ways so it's like that was sort of my big takeaway but what what about you liz uh, you know, Rebecca is a very, very, very close friend of mine. She's like in the inner core circle and I've witnessed her from, you know, first few drafts of the script to now the film coming out moments where we never knew it would happen to now it's really making a splash. And I hundred percent agree with you. She's intentional. And, um, I just, I'm very proud of her. I guess that's my takeaway. I remember just like sitting there in the Zoom, <laughs> feeling really happy, getting to see her face. And I think they're friends that, that we have where I have some friends where I just sit there and I'm like, I'm jealous of you. And there's some friends where you can just feel very happy and proud of knowing them and their efforts because you feel like they deserved every minutia of, the, of success that's coming their way. So that's the way I feel about her. Way I'm excited for this film. I want everyone to see what breaks the ice and glad that we got to chat with her. So Liz, have you heard of this IATSE strike? <laughs> uh, it is all I hear about. It is what I hear about nonstop. Absolutely. Um, but what, what, do you, what do you have to say about it? I read this article. I was, it was brought to my attention by our wonderful producer, Eric. And uh, I think this is, uh, it's really interesting because, um, you know- What it's, article it's about did you read, Eric? What article? <laughs> 
I read the article on the Hollywood Reporter um, with the headline. I don't even remember what the headline was. It was it's about the IATSE strike. Yeah, you read an article. I, <laughs> I got it. Yeah, now I want to prove that I did. Cinematographers Guild board votes unanimously, unanimously to support IATSE strike authorization. So that's what it said. And basically, like the article, no offense, you ever wrote this, but that's basically all the thing says. <laughs> It doesn't give any more detail or real insight. It just basically outlines exactly what happened. But um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things that, um, you know, is important for people to get, you know, like paid back for all the hard work they do, you know, especially since like all these new avenues of um, studios being able to just like basically do um, vertical integration Mm -hmm. on their work. It's like, which was I think like supposed to be like not something you're supposed to do, but well, it was illegal for like eight no, years or something, exactly. and then right. uh, and then they just disbanded that that policy. Wow, yeah. So basically, um, now it's like, oh yeah, Disney can hire whatever they want, you know, do, and then they can just release the movie through their own service, and all the 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 things that were in place to to pay out people for all their hard work on the back end. Like now don't matter anymore <laughs> well, because, because they found all... another way yeah. of getting it out there through the streaming services. And that's true for, you know, Warner Brothers. That's true for Paramount. That's true for Universal. It's because they all have their streaming platforms now. Right. So like Liz, I mean, doesn't it seem like really crucial that like people get, you know, paid back for, you know, if they do a good job of something super successful, they should see something. Right. Well, I mean, uh, there's a many issues here. Right. And one of them is. Um, when you work under a new media contract, uh, but the media is no longer new anymore. I think those contracts were built because it was like, ooh, the internet, ooh, streaming, what is this newfangled thing? And they didn't really know how to figure out and break down the revenue and um, how the working condition conditions should be because it was this new frontier. So I think that's one aspect of this. And the second thing is what I'm most interested in, obviously compensation, but most is restricting working hours so that people can go home, get sleep and have decent turnarounds. If you follow the IATSE stories, Instagram account, which is like really doing a great job of amplifying all the individual stories of the workers who have authorized the vote to strike. Um, they're just horror stories. They're like, my relationship has suffered. I had to pull over to the side of the road countless times because I'm not sleeping. And it's just really absurd the way workers are abused and exploited in this industry. So I'm most interested in like better working conditions for my friends. So what, what is there a solution here? Is it just like, oh, we'll take at no overtime ever? <laughs> Like we just like, or only can work 14 hour days. That's the max amount of day. If you go into overtime or is there caps on working days? Like what is, do you I think know they're the suggesting details? like there's specific things that they're suggesting. Um, but um, I, I obviously think compensation is a part of this. And there's this great IATSE story where the, the guy was like, you know, um, an actor, if you're bringing in a high profile actor onto a shoot their agent is going to make more money if they work less days because they can pack more projects into that actor's schedule. So those days become 
packed with you know shooting time and then the hours for the crew gets compounded because of that so it's like from the top down it's just exploiting people it's exploiting talent it's exploiting exploiting the crew um so i think it's slowing down is what needs to happen is like as an industry we need to just slow down just a little bit and to compensate people appropriately budgets are going to get bigger doing that and like all these other things are gonna kind of be another like like a, a you know whatever snowball yeah snowball effect from it but i mean i think that's for the greater good though you know and especially because they're spending so many goddamn dollars on these things anyways i mean this new uh last of us tv show has got 10 million dollars per episode that hbo's playing putting down it's like yeah, I don't know. Like, you should be able to get it done in a reasonable amount of time if you're paying $10 an episode. I mean, there's no excuse. You know, maybe your your pockets will get a little bit thinner, um, studio execs or agents or whoever is the, profiting the most. But, you know, it, it's going to be better for the show. You I know, think that's and the for argument. The, the argument is that, like, the people at the top are, are uh, absorbing the majority of more revenue than they should. And it's, it's becoming like a political fight and an economic fight, fight and an ethical fight. I totally am with you. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's true. I mean, like, I'm not looking at the books. Like, I don't know where the money's going. All I know is that you shouldn't be forcing people to work 14 hour days. I just think that's crazy. When are you going to see your family? This yeah, is an but industry. You- but you've seen, you've been on big sets, like you see how lavish things get with like the crafty and how things are with like all the services and all the things that are provided um, for a crew and for cast at that, especially cast crew too. I mean, for both. Um, but yeah, I think that's the kind of thing that needs to be pared down. It's like, we don't need to be treated like kings when we're making a, sh- a movie or a show. Yeah. Like we could just get like a basic, nice spread, you know, enough, you know, to have a nice day and like, you know, a reasonable trailer. It doesn't need to be like, you know, whatever, like a Metallica sized, you know, whatever. Like it could just be, I, I feel like we should just kind of go back to like doing things in a sensible manner, but that's just not, that's not kind of our culture really. I think American right. culture isn't really sensible. Bigger it's all about- bigger is better. Like, you know, my value as a person or an actor or whatever is connected to the trailer that I get on my set. It's like, you know, if I don't have a big enough trailer then I'm not good enough, it's like, well, that's not, fuck that. Fuck that idea. The whole mentality should just be like, God. It's ego. Yeah. And it's also like, yeah, it's evening the playing field between the actors, right? One actor sees someone else's trailer is really big and they demand something else and more resources go to talent. And it's, it's absurd. Um, I, I, I completely agree. I've never been, I've never been on a big set, by the way, I've literally never been on a big set. I never really? shadowed anyone. I've never been on a, I mean, never I been a PA running no, around never, stuff. never. <laughs> Um, I interned for Adam Goodman, who is the head of Paramount for like six months. And I drove a golf cart on the studio lot. That's the closest I've gotten to, to a big set. I've never gone on the set. Um, but I do remember that when I was there, I heard stories. This was back iPod two days, iPad, iPad Ooh, two days, iPad, two iPad days. two days. Okay. And it was one of the Transformers movies. And I remember seeing that all of the actors who are the top billing actors got iPad twos. And I remember just thinking like, why, 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 why does that happen? 
Yeah, why do you spend $500 per actor on a a gift? Yeah. You know, like gifts are nice. And like, I mean, gifts I get are a big deal. And like, you know, like I've done gifts on short films. I've done gifts on my feature, but like, you know, like a reasonable like gift, like not a fucking iPad that's brand new. Uh, So hopefully I just, I'm very excited. I'm excited for change. I'm, I'm like, in unity with our union brothers and sisters fighting the good fight. Well, I was, I'm a little concerned that like what we just talked about isn't necessarily being addressed in this, that it's not like trying to refocus resources in a way that's going to benefit the production better, but you know, maybe, but you know, I think that's really what needs to happen is like, you know, like the portion of the budget that's being spent on these people up here needs to trickle down to the rest of the production in order for productions to actually work correctly, you know? Well, we're trying, I mean, we're with the short film I'm doing, we're just trying, we're like tiny, we're so small, but what I'm trying to do, and now we'll see if I get the ovaries to do it is we're trying to do salary transparency across the board for everyone so that everyone knows what everyone's getting. And then um, we're doing eight hour talent calls in my cinematographer doesn't want a 10 hour crew call. She wants more. So we're not going more than 12 hours, but we might do an 11 hour crew call, which I know is still mm. revolutionary. Um, but I really want a 10 to like give people a break. But, it, but point being, I think if more, instead of these like ridiculous, like badges, like, oh, these like superficial um, badges of honor with regard to, um, green sets and diversity sets and all these things. I just think those like stickers and those emblems are meaningless. Like put your money where your mouth is, pay people appropriately, and then make it transparent and tell everyone what's going on. And I think salary transparency could be the way to go. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool one. So like you're, you're not paying everyone the same amount. Everyone's getting structured based off their role. And then you're going to like, how are you going to announce that are you going to send out like a newsletter to the whole crew or are you going to send it in an email or like before every hire i've told them like we're, we want to do salary transparency but we'll only do it if everyone buys in and like the goal originally was everyone to get the same rate but it really became impossible to do that i can do that on a feature i can't do that on a short so um i have to i i honestly it's like pressing the green button at this point because i think almost everyone has bought in to the idea of salary transparency and now I'm just waiting for it to blow back and someone to yell at me for giving makeup five times what they have. But you know what? Like it is a makeup heavy shoot. So yeah, special effects makeup, man. They need the money. Yeah. You know. Um, I think uh, I want to hear more about this. I want to hear how it goes. I want to. I want you to chronicle the steps because <laughs> I've never tried anything like this. Like salary transparency. It's really touchy. You know, yeah. like you got to be really careful because, like, I've worked on sets where you know, everyone's working for free, but, but we needed to get this one person to work because we did no other option. It was like a steady camp person. We gave them a hundred dollars, you know, and then we have to be like, look, no one else is getting paid. Like, please don't talk about that. Oh. You got only a hundred dollars because, because then they'll say things like, no, oh, we're only getting a hundred dollars for this. <laughs> it's like, wait, I'm not getting anything, you know? And you're like, oh man. So I've, I've definitely been aware, been nervous to, to let that kind of information out, you know, except when I was paying everybody the same, then it was easy. That's like, everyone's getting the same. There's no, there's no complaints, you know? Well, 
I would say one thing helps, uh, two things help is uh, Sean is playing one of the characters and I am openly telling everyone that he's not being paid. And in the <laughs> film, his penis falls off. So like, this is the father of my child. <laughs> this is the person that means more to me than anything. Him and Colin are like my world and he gets nothing. So I think they know it's not a reflection of care or value, right? Right, right. Um, and then also I'm not taking a fee. And, um, and right. we have at least at least one more volunteer laborer in this short. Nice. So yeah. yeah, I'll tell you what happens. I'll tell you. Oh, tell, oh you tell me. Okay. Um, yeah. I think that's a good move though, to not take compensation as the director. I mean, how can, how can you? On, on well, a project it's like half this? my money. So like, what am right. I going to do? <laughs> Pay yourself. <laughs> and then put it right back in the movie. Um, so Liz, yeah. uh, I've got a question for you um, about distribution. I'm here. So like I'm in the process of taking distribution meetings right now and meetings with sales agents and all this stuff. And I kind of wanted to get your take on this idea that I had that I've sort of started to implement with front of the show, uh, Jeanette Bloom. So basically we're like talking to the same distributors and the same sales agents and everything. So we were like, well, we should just share everything. Like yes. We should just talk about like what they're offering her, what they're offering me, just like do it. And I, my question was like, is that, wrong for no. any reason like is there any reason not to do that like should we be worried about this kind of like open transparent communication that's like the benefit of hiring someone like me like what you're doing is you're like getting the data without having to hire anyone because like I've done deals I've witnessed contracts and I could say look they went down to this on this other deal I think you can get there I think um what's interesting about you and Jeanette doing it is I've had women filmmakers tell me that uh, they had like a best friend or a husband who happened to be male and was a filmmaker who worked with the same company and the company offered them a different deal. And you can always, like it can always be that that film was in more demand or that film um, has some more of a niche audience or whatever it is, but there's also unconscious bias coming into some of these negotiations. So I think it's really good for whatever the reason to check the company and to check each other and see um, uh, whether you're being taken advantage of or not in that moment. Yeah. So I think that's super smart. And I think if you, you know, Alex Ferrari's Facebook group is a good resource for something like that to go in and say, oh, who's nice. worked with X company, let's talk about what they offered you. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's um, you know, it's funny to, to just hear these pitches and, you know, people try to sell you on working with them or, you know, in the one meeting I had this morning, <laughs> kind of be like more like playing like kind of coy or like, you know, not like, well, I don't know how much I can get. Ah, uh, it's just like, I don't know. I don't really appreciate that kind of um, way of like talking about something or trying to trying to get me to feel like, I don't know, like, oh, I need you, you know, because my movie is not that good because you're like hemming and hawing like, oh, I need you. Like, I really want to make a deal with you because you're going to you're going to maybe if you take a chance on me, you can sell my movie. And that's sort of like the kind of dynamic I could tell that you was trying to set up. And I'm just like, no, dude, <laughs> that's not cool. Um, yeah, I mean. But the thing, the advantage I have over most filmmakers is that I have my producer, Jeff, who's like sold like 20 movies, who's on these calls with me. And like, he just knows like how to get right to the questions. Like he asks the right questions 
he he knows when people are bullshitting he knows like what yeah. it actually should like what they could be getting or they might be able to get for something like this so it's like a little bit of an, of an extra you know piece of ammunition or whatever so I, I wonder like with I don't know if Jeanette has a person like that I don't think she does um like those conversations are probably very different you know when when she's just a lone filmmaker without that kind of veteran in the corner to like help you know facilitate the conversation well yes and since since I do sales now I've been sitting on more chats with distributors and I've seen one distributor go from pitch to pitch with the same amount of enthusiasm enthusiasm for each title where they saw the movie for one film and they didn't see the movie for the other. Like I've seen like <laughs> that's their job, right? Is to sell you on them and sell you on their right. services. And like enthusiasm often wins out. And I think distributors or like that acquisitions person knows that all they have to do is turn up the charm, compliment you on your film, speak with enthusiasm and come at you with like um, a really optimistic outlook for how the film will go. I tend to really like the distributors who are pretty um, level-headed, even uh, they're, they're not that emotional and they just say, look, we can't give you any, any projections, but here's what we can promise you. And usually if they say they love my film, I don't trust them. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I, I trust the people that give me like a concrete pragmatic plan for how they're going to get the film out into the world and like can talk to me like a human more so than the distributor that just says, well, I love that part where the robot sticks um, a knife in someone's stomach. That was so great. You know, whatever. I didn't make that movie, but. I want to I want to make that movie. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's 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 kind of hard to tell when it's if it's authentic or not, because in one one of the distributors who really fawned over my movie and like, you know, just said the nicest things and like not just like general niceties, but like very specific things they took away from the movie. And it's like, oh, wow. It's like, like, then I'm thinking, did I write that anywhere online that he could have just said that? Like, cause he read that in my, my director's statement or he read that somewhere and he's like, yeah, you really nailed this. And I'm like, oh, that's what I was going for. It's like, wait, I said, that's what I was going for right here. <laughs> so he just repeated it back to me. So, but I, I feel like, you know, I don't know. I'm just like a really trusting person. So I'm not going to like yeah. go ahead into a conversation and just think that this person's lying to me. Um, but I think it makes it easy when they're like giving you like the actual numbers and the actual like, you know, whatever, like their, their, their hope, what they're asking for, and then like giving you the contract. But the other person I talked to this morning, like I was like asking like, so what's your deal? Like, what, like, what is it? Like, what do you take? And he was like, well, I gotta get my partner to watch it and see if she likes it. I don't really wanna say any number right now. Like I wanna look at it first and with her, like I love the movie, but she needs to see it. And it's like, well, you can't even tell me like what a rough idea of what your take would be or how, what your, if you're gonna take a fee and a percentage or just a percentage or just a fee, he like couldn't didn't want to answer that question, and I was like, why don't you just answer that question? <laughs> like, why do you have to like? So why are they know, taking a phone call with you unless they're prepared to send you an offer? Like, I don't understand I, I don't that know. mentality. It's like time is really valuable to everyone these days, so don't waste it no. unless you really want. The We're movement. gonna have another call on Thursday, which I think he'll make the offer on. So it's like, okay. Anyways, yeah, well, I see you rolling, <laughs> rolling your eyes. eyes. Um, <laughs> 
I, I wrote a, I write about this a lot. So if I'm repeating myself, I, I apologize, but I think that they know, they know our character. They know we're emotional beings. They know we're sensitive. We're artists and they know what things to poke at. Like they know if you're making, you know, um, a dystopic sci-fi, you know, film, what your goals are for that film. Like it's all psychology. Mm. It's all social, social psychology. And I think as filmmakers, we get told no so often that it's very tempting to to just be thrilled and excited by anything and anyone who says yes to you. And that's mm-hmm. where you're right now. So you're going to have to check your bias ever, after every meeting and make sure that they're a good partner. Last question. Are there any like giant red flags to look for in these meetings? Like anything that like if I hear someone say or hear like a certain like thing being presented, I should be like, okay not those people if they guarantee a netflix deal or if they guarantee a certain amount of revenue like no matter what if they give you projections and they say well we're gonna make you at least 100k or something like that i wouldn't trust them because there's Mm -hmm. no way they can guarantee that and that's really just lip service for you to try to get them to sign with you Mm -hmm. um and the other things obviously are like term length like if they are adamant about having a 10 to 15 year term length, that's a red flag. And if, you know, you call them and you say, well, like, you're not going to use my educational rights, are you? Or what about my live semi-theatrical screening rights? Are you really going to use those? Can I carve those out? And they say like, well, you know, we really want to handle everything, you know, you know, you know, sorry. I didn't mean to do a male voice for everything, but all (laughs) men are not evil. Um, But if they, they put forth this, control over you anything that implies control or inflexibility those are red flags uh and then is like a a 20 80 split for the distributor and the filmmaker pretty standard or is that like that's good a bad deal no well, 80 20 is good um a filmmaker gets 80 distributor gets 20 uh mm-hmm. i've seen anywhere from 20 to 30 percent it's usually in that range in terms of distributor take and the the average is usually 25 um mm-hmm. so 80 20 is really good 80 20 is like what indie rights does it's what giant does um mm-hmm. and those are companies that don't market your title so just recognize that usually they'll do a better split to you if there's less effort on their part to put Mm -hmm. forth like a customized release plan. And if they really put muscle in, they're probably going to increase that split a little bit towards them. Mm. Interesting. Well, thanks, Liz. This has been very helpful. Um, If you want to reach out to us and send us a question, a comment or suggestion, you can do so at podcast.makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. I don't think we've gotten one of those in a while, so that would be nice, anyone. And finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. A big thanks to Rebecca S. Grace for coming on the show, and thanks to Adriana Valentin, not really for setting up the interview because Liz is friends with Rebecca, but she did provide some images, so thank you so much, Adriana. Um, much appreciated. And we'll talk to you all next week. do like publish your log log line to a network of industry industry eh.